Steve Lawson has said, if we lose the pulpit, we lose the church. And if we lose the church, we lose the world. Now, when Dr. Lawson refers to the pulpit, he's not speaking about a a lectern or a music stand or some kind of steel or wooden podium like this black pulpit my Bible and my notes are sitting on this morning. No, he's not saying if we lose the church furniture, we're going to lose the church. No, he's talking about something of much more substance rather than surface-level issues like church furniture. He's talking about what is preached or what should be preached from the pulpit that has the greatest importance for the lifeline of any church. In other words, the content of what is being ushered forth, what is being sounded forth from the preacher's voice Sunday after Sunday is more important to the vitality of a church than things like artistic creativity, human cleverness. That's why he goes on to say the following critique that really just exposes the lack of depth and lack of substance that we find in many of our church pulpits today. He writes, What passes for preaching in many of today's pulpits is little more than sermonettes for Christianettes. No doubt you know exactly the kind of preaching to which I am referring. 20-minute pep talks filled with shallow cliches, self-help snippets, and bumper sticker slogans. Have you ever asked the question, what's wrong with the church today? Or what's wrong with the churches in my community these days? Or maybe make it more personal. What's wrong with my church these days? Well, let's get really honest. What's wrong with my heart before God these days? Beloved, humble self-examination is a good thing to do throughout your Christian life. Humble self-examination is a good thing to do throughout your Christian life. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Peter wrote to his hearers in 2 Peter 1, verse 10, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. This goes for an individual Christian and for those who profess to be a Christian. And this also goes for an individual local church as well. You can read Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and see Jesus encourage instruct and even rebuke seven churches in Asia Minor. He calls each of them to stay faithful to him by heeding the call. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But once a person or a church hears from their Lord 
and Jesus reveals his spiritual diagnosis of us, we soon begin to discover the real core problem of what's wrong. Because Jesus is the best counselor, and because Jesus is the best church consultant, we will begin to see, maybe even for the first time, what God has seen inside of us and inside of our churches, what God has seen all along. And Jesus, out of his grace and his truth, just like he does for all his true churches, he exposes to us what is evil, ungodly, unholy, spiritually destructive in our lives. And he does this for our good. But sadly, when when many of us actually find out how bad and how wicked and how backwards and how unhealthy our attitudes are, we can become too afraid to change, can't we? We can be tempted to think to ourselves, ah, I know our church traditions are a golden calf, but it will just be too hard to put to death. I know these traditions are probably unwise, outdated, maybe even outright unbiblical. But it's what we've always done. And beloved, this fear of change, we like to call, I don't like change very much. Friends, let's just call it what it is. You're afraid of biblical repentance. You're afraid of dealing with the real issues of your heart and the real issues of my heart. And the Bible gives a word for that. It's called pride. It's pride. It's it's pride masquerading around like faithfulness. You see, this is because the idol of self-love and comfortable Christianity is more common to you and I than we realize. How many of us, when we are confronted with something that God exposes in our heart, whether it's in a sermon, maybe a a hard conversation with a brother and sister in Christ, maybe something you read in Scripture that, whoo, that is hard to swallow. What are you tempted to do? You're tempted to find a loophole. You're tempted to try to reinterpret the text to make it fit your agenda, to fit my agenda. Friends, that's one of the advantages and the challenges of preaching through books of the Bible. You can't skip hard passages. And by the way, if you know someone who goes to a church who the pastor deliberately skips hard passages, they need to deliberately leave that church. Friends, it's the hard things that we might not understand totally that are still good for us to be humbled by. You see, we like to sweep things under the rug. We like to fly under the radar. We like to roam on the fringe of the sheep flock, and we want to avoid dealing with sinful attitudes and sinful actions. But Friends, if, if you do that, and if a church does that, we're going to be like the church in Sardis. Remember the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3? They had the reputation of being alive on the outside but they were dead on the inside. 
And some people, really including churches too, may even become angry (laughs) that you would suggest they are wrong or that they're off the mark from obeying God's truth. And sadly, these people don't see corrections as an expression of love and care. They are instead deeply offended by what you tell them. To even suggest that maybe the way you were raised in your church environment might have been totally at odds with the teaching of God's word is then regarded as out of line, out of bounds, not allowed. But you see, every generation of believers, every generation of churches faces its own set of challenges and setbacks. Friends, there is no golden age until we get to the golden shore. So kiss the past goodbye and make believe. I wish I lived in this century and in this decade and this part of the world. Baloney. There is nothing new under the sun. Stop wanting heaven now. We're not going to get it now. It's coming, but we're not there yet. Every Christian and every church goes through roller coasters of spiritual highs and lows, and there are no exceptions from the preacher in the pulpit to the member in the pew. You see, when sin runs unchecked in the camp and when Satan gets a front row seat in the leadership of a church, the need for God to show his kindness, to show his mercy to his people again, is the same need we have in every generation until Jesus comes back. Have you ever read the book of Judges before? Raise your hand. If you're intimidated by the book of Judges, don't worry. It's like a daytime talk show um, with bizarre, crazy things that happen in it, and it's still in the Bible. It's fascinating. But one of the things you'll find out in the book of Judges is there seems to be like a repeat button, just a, a constant cyclical pattern where the people of God don't listen to God, and then they're captured by the enemies of God. But why don't they listen to God? The book of Judges is summed up in one verse. There was no king in Israel, and they did what was right in their own eyes. Friends, anytime you and I think we can live the Christian life with what's right in our own eyes, we're going to find ourselves stuck, trapped, ensnared, and defeated. Every generation, every church, every Christian always has reason to cry out to God for mercy. To help us once again. Every even long season of peace and favor, where things seem to be going swell in your Christian life, eventually they're going to get interrupted, especially in the life of the church. There's moral failures, spiritual apathy, worldly compromise, and theological infidelity. I would encourage you, maybe as a goal in 2022, I would encourage you to grow in your interest of studying church history. You don't have to buy a book this big. I can recommend small ones. But if you thumb through church history, just I can give you some different kind of epics of time. You'll find time and time again that the things that we go through today are just being put on repeat. They're manifested in different ways. but still the same issues. If you talk to Christians who've been following Jesus for decades, ask them story after story if they're Friends they had in their 20s are still following Jesus today. Friends, study church history. 
talk to older Christians, and you will hear story after story of religious apostasy and religious hypocrisy. Until we get to glory, there will be no perfect churches. And that means there is always a need for revival and reformation. This morning, we find ourselves staring at the life and ministry of Jesus as he exposes the empty worship of religious hypocrisy. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. This morning, we're going to be looking together at Mark 7, verses 1 to 23. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 491. Last week, we concluded Mark chapter 6 by beholding the compassionate care of our good shepherd as he cared for his weary disciples and as he cared for his hungry and helpless crowd that drew near to him. This morning in Mark 7, we're going to behold that our compassionate shepherd is also our bold and courageous shepherd. Our courageous shepherd who exposed religious hypocrisy that unless repented of, will condemn you to an eternal hell. Please follow with me. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have one big main idea and three questions that will guide as our outline for this morning. Here's your big main idea. Jesus exposes religious hypocrisy because God cares how we worship God. Jesus exposes religious hypocrisy Because God cares how we worship God. Three questions that will guide as an outline for us. Question number one, according to Jesus, what is religious hypocrisy? What is religious hypocrisy? Number two, how does Jesus expose religious hypocrisy? How does Jesus expose religious hypocrisy? And number three, what is the remedy for curing religious hypocrisy. What is the remedy for curing religious hypocrisy? Let's look at that first question together. According to Jesus, what is religious hypocrisy? Now, much in the same way, when you study any important topic in the Bible, defining terms is crucial for our understanding. So if someone wants to get in a debate with you about something in the Bible, Always ask the question, before we talk about, fill in the blank, define what you mean. Because meaning matters. According to the New Testament, the word hypocrite, it literally means an actor under an assumed character. An actor under an assumed character. Uh, When I was a kid, my favorite action figure heroes were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So if I got any turtle nerds out there, Donatello, the purple one, that was my guy. I had pictures of them on my wall. 
I watched the whole movie series. I actually watched them since I've been married. And I really enjoyed the Ninja Turtle arcade game that I spent a lot of money on. But then there came that sad day in a young boy's life where I realized the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles weren't real. As a young boy, I had to come to grips with the fact that my heroes, my courageous role models that I looked up to and admired, these giant teenage mutant ninja turtles who listen to a rat, who talks, they weren't actually giant teenage mutant ninja turtles. They were, in fact, actors that wore a turtle costume. They were paid to be something that they were not in actual real life. Well, friends, in the ancient world, a hypocrite was a term that gave off the same basic meaning. In those days, actors did not wear makeup to disguise themselves for their part. Instead, they wore masks representing the character, uh, the personality of the actor was hidden behind the mask he wore. So how should we understand what a hypocrite is today? This is a man or a woman, boy or girl, that is a pious, which means godly, pretender. This is a Christian actor, a spiritual phony, a holy Halloween costume they wear at church or at church events. It's something they can just kind of take off depending on what crowd they're with. It's someone who might even be a rule follower on the outside and yet remain a lover of sin and self on the inside. Here we are in the American South and Midwest. We could probably define a hypocrite a little more contextual like this. It's a Bible Belt Bible thumper who deliberately lives an unrepentant double life when other Christians aren't watching. We might even define a hypocrite today as a counterfeit Christian, a spiritually dead church member. Someone who makes a bold profession of faith in Christ. They can quote the scriptures. They can show you their deacon's certificate or where they went to seminary. But when you actually get to know them, they might preach repentance, but their life is absent of repentance. Friends, that is a full-blown hypocrite. We're not talking about a Christian who sins. We're talking about someone who deliberately disobeys Jesus but gives a pretense to others that they're obeying Jesus. Did you know that people actually live that way? As a pastor, I get the front row seat of seeing religious hypocrisy. And it's disgusting. This is a religiously-minded person who goes through the motions and formations of attending church, attending events. 
They might have even had a strong religious upbringing. They might be a strict rule follower, a fundamentalist, checklist, extraordinaire. Someone who says we should be separate from the world. Someone who can call out sins in other people's lives. And yet there is a gigantic hole in their holiness. A massive, gaping, dark hole in their so-called holiness. If you want to know two signs of a religious hypocrite, you'll typically see two things. Number one, they can see other people's sins a whole lot more than they can see their own. They can see other people's sins a whole lot clearer than their own. And number two, their opinions, their man-made traditions take a higher precedent over and above the Word of God. They take opinions and man's traditions and make it a higher precedent than the Word of God. And because Jesus has no holes in his holiness, in fact, Jesus is called the Holy One of God. Mark 1.24, Jesus exposes the gaping hole, this massive canyon of hypocrisy of religious hypocrites. Interesting, though, we've been following Jesus for quite some time in Mark's gospel. He's met a whole lot of people. I mean, the sick, the unclean, the cripple, the notorious sinners of his day. Jesus never scathes. He never crushes someone with weak or small faith. But there is one group of people that Jesus holds nothing back towards. Never sins, but he says exactly what needs to be said at the right time. There's a particular group of people in Jesus' ministry when he was on this earth that were professional spiritual actors. They had this gaping hole in their understanding of holiness. They were known as the Pharisees. We see them mentioned in our text this morning in verse 1, verse 3, and in verse 5. Sometimes they're kind of lumped together like one big crony. Like one big kind of gang of friends with the scribes and the elders of Jerusalem. If you recall back to Mark 3, verses 22 to 30, do you remember it was the scribes who came from Jerusalem who charged Jesus, of all people, with blasphemy, which was a capital offense? And you can see the scribes and elders mentioned in our passage again, too, along with the Pharisees in verse 1, verse 3. And verse 5, and in fact, if, if you want to look ahead to Mark 8.31 sometime, you'll notice that they're lumped together when speaking about the impending crucifixion of Jesus. Now keep in mind, we've already learned a little bit about the Pharisees up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. So hold your place in Mark 7. I want you to turn back to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We haven't heard about these guys in a while. And they've come back. We need to be refreshed on who they are and why they oppose Jesus so much in his ministry. Mark chapter 2. I want you to look with me at verses 15 and 16. Mark 2, starting in verse 15. 
And as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Then they're mentioned again in Mark 2, verse 18, just a few verses down, indicating that the Pharisees, they actually had a following. They had students in their seminary. They had disciples. They had devout followers, just like John the Baptist did, just like Jesus did. And then drop down to verse 23 and 24, we see the Pharisees doing what they do best, being suspicious of Jesus and questioning his disciples. We read, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now I want you to look over in Mark chapter 3, just one chapter over. Mark chapter 3. Have you ever heard someone say, you you can't judge a book by its cover, you can't judge me, only God can judge me, God sees my heart, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. You know what I love about the Bible? Sometimes the Bible tells us exactly what's in people's hearts. What was in the heart of the Pharisees? Why did they have so much beef with Jesus? I mean, he healed the sick. He helped the suffering. He taught those sheep who were without a shepherd. He cared for the despised and outcast. How did they really feel about Jesus? Look with me in Mark 3, verse 6. Mark 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. You can go back to Mark chapter 7. Friends, why did these religious leaders of Israel hate Jesus so much? What did they have against him? Well, it all goes back to the whole in their misunderstanding of holiness, to their total misunderstanding of what true worship is, to God. You see, the word Pharisee meant separate one, which sounds very similar at first, but it's not the same as someone who's set apart. That's really what holiness means. It means to be set apart, to be distinct, to be clean in God's eyes, to be set apart for God's purposes. But these Pharisees touted themselves as those who were separate, very, very similar. The Pharisees were a strict sect of the Jewish people who zealously studied and taught and would enforce hundreds of commandments in Scripture and then add to it. And yet, these Pharisees would also twist the Scriptures quite conveniently to suit their own advantage, gutting the very heart and intent of God's Word to His people. You might say they use the Bible to justify their hypocrisy. 
Instead of reading the Bible to see their sin and their need for God's mercy and grace, they found loopholes to make them look better in the eyes of others. They conveniently would focus on some parts of the Bible and disregard the weightier and more important parts of the Bible. As you'll see there in our passage this morning in Mark 7, verses 3 to 13, Jesus alludes to their strict adherence to the tradition of the elders. What was the tradition of the elders? Well, this was known as the oral tradition, later known as the Mishnah, that included various implications and applications to the Torah, which was God's law. Over time and throughout generation after generation, an exceedingly scrupulous and strict set of rules, do's and don'ts and regulations had in essence been added to what the scriptures already taught in the law of Moses. Uh, This oral tradition of the elders of Israel over time, basically like this, here was the Bible, the oral tradition, just use some paper, was more like this. Instead of God's word being an authority over them, the Mishnah, the oral tradition, began to be of first importance. This is what they went to to determine what worship looked like, what holiness looked like. This was their new worship playbook, if you will. You see, the Bible, as we call it today, had subtly taken a back seat as an authority over the Pharisees. Instead, the traditions of men, things conjured up, things re-engineered by mere opinion that was not inspired of God, began to be the very thing they fed their selfish pride towards. You see, what got these Pharisees in so much trouble with Jesus is they cared a whole lot about the letter of the law and neglected the intent and heart behind it. Uh, These men paraded themselves of comparing themselves to the tax collectors who were much more sinful than they were, which means that they also had a problem with Jesus. And they had a problem with Jesus' disciples because what have we learned in Mark's gospel? Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus healed the unclean. And his disciples followed him. You see, at the end of the day, what deeply offended the Pharisees about Jesus is Jesus did not adhere to the tradition of the elders. He ignored them. And he even rebuked them for enforcing these man-made traditions on others to obey. In Mark 7, which if you want to read Matthew's gospel, the parallel is Matthew chapter 15, this oral tradition of the elders that apparently Jesus had ignored and some of his disciples had broken had to do with hand washing. This was a ceremonial cleansing ritual that extended to things like cups and vessels and pots. You can see that in verses 2 to 4. But you see, this isn't exactly how we view hand-washing today. The hand-washing in Mark 7 was not fundamentally for hygienic reasons. So kids, if your parents tell you to wash your hands, don't go to Mark 7 
for any kind of like, well, Jesus said we didn't have to. That's bad hermeneutics. Wash your hands. If they're dirty, wash them. I worked for a cleaning company for eight years. Boy, do you need to wash your hands. But the Pharisees are not all about hygienic cleaning. They're not working for Jana King or my old company, Office Clean. They are concerned about ceremonial cleansing. If you read the book of Leviticus, you'll see all these different laws, food laws, civil laws, uh, things that were ceremonial laws dealing with sacrifices, bodily discharges, and even places you had traveled. Uh, Sometimes it did require people to wash or to bathe after being and doing certain things. But according to the Old Testament, it shows you how much the Pharisees didn't know their Bibles. It was only the priest that were required by God's law to wash their hands before they entered the tabernacle. Exodus 30, verse 19. Otherwise, the washing of hands, the point of real contention here, the thing that got the Pharisees offended by Jesus was prescribed only if you had touched a bodily discharge. Leviticus 15. That's why Jesus who knew his Old Testament very well, could also see right through the religious hypocrites, dead and spiritually deceived hearts. Friends, out of all people, these were the people who were known and touted as people with big theological heads, strict discipline of fasting and prayers and giving. People would rise as they walked into the synagogue, and the best seats in the house were reserved for them. These people, friends, some of the most respected in the religious community, Jesus exposed. Jesus exposed them as counterfeits. Which leads to question number two. How does Jesus expose Religious hypocrites. Look with me at verses 6 to 8. Mark 7, verses 6 to 8. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and hold to the tradition of men. Friends, this is super important. How does Jesus expose religious hypocrisy? In order to expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, Jesus simply exposed the Pharisees to the clear teaching of the Scriptures. Let me say that again. How did Jesus expose religious hypocrisy? He simply exposed the Pharisees to the clear teaching of Scripture. Just like he did with Satan in the wilderness. He quotes the Bible. He quotes, thus saith the Lord. He quotes as it is written. And in this context, it's the prophet Isaiah. He's he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, which is really sandwiched in between a list of oracles or judgments of warning and discipline 
that had fallen upon the faithless nation of Israel. If you want to know how dark and bad it got in Israel's day, or in Isaiah's day in Israel, read Isaiah chapters 1 to 6 sometime. It's super depressing, super discouraging. And then God tells Isaiah, here's your ministry assignment. Yeah, it's daunting. And yet Jesus, of all passages he could quote to these religious hypocrites, he picks a passage of judgment on the leaders of Israel. Jesus not only can quote scripture in its context, but he can say it boldly and pierce even the most hardened heart of his opponents. One of the chief indictments that God brought against the leaders of Israel, did you notice? They offered lip service to God, but had no heart for God. Friends, did you know that religious people, good old Baptist, can give lip service to God and not have a heart for him? That's why the Lord says in verses 6 and 7, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, verse 7, it really just means in fruitlessness. They just go through the motions. Do they worship me? Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. As you study the life of a Pharisee, which Matthew's gospel speaks more about than Mark's, the heart of a Pharisee could really be summarized in this one sentence. They had an all-absorbing obsession of love for self. An all-absorbing obsession of love for self, which is the total opposite of Jesus the king of love and humility. You see, for the Pharisees, whether it was their prayers or giving or fasting, it was the praise of men. To be seen by men is what their heart wanted. They used God. They used the synagogue. They used people to draw them to themselves. Their lips of praise to God was a fake. It was phony. It was lip service without any heart transformation. Friends, does that describe you this morning? Is your mom and dad a Christian, but you realize that your heart is far from the God that they serve? Or maybe your spouse encouraged you to come to church again And you came, but you came dragging your feet. Maybe you've even been at church for a long time. Maybe you're a member of this church. But you've never actually examined your own heart to say, do I really love this God or not? See, for the Pharisees, their holiness really was just about how they appeared before men. How good they could look. But for Jesus, it was being most concerned about what God thinks, about what God sees. That's why all these extra rules and regulations they were adding to the Bible 
was really showing they were in it for the wrong reasons. They didn't want to obey what the clear teaching of Scripture was. They wanted to make it softer and more palatable and more convenient for them. Friends, the heart behind dead religion is a focus on man and his performance before men. The heart behind dead religion is a focus on man and his performance before men. It's basically an American Idol version of church. But the heart behind pure and undefiled religion begins when our heart has been transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful to look at the Pharisees as some foreign alien because every single one of us may have a little version of a Pharisee growing in our hearts, and we don't even realize it. For example, if you're someone who tends to lean towards being perfectionistic, that means basically nothing you do is ever good enough in your eyes, or nothing anyone else does for you is good enough in your eyes, you need to be very vigilant over this slippery slope. It happened hook, line, and sinker for the Pharisees. It can happen to any one of us too. Whether you were raised in a certain home or you were brought up in school, sports, work, and church, uh, we can all become a product of prideful and perfectionistic thinking. Our minds can literally be trapped into this way of thinking. i got to make a name for myself. I'm going to make my parents proud. I've got to be an overachiever. Maybe you think you'll never be happy until people approve of you. Friends, these are all symptoms and signs of possibly a pharisaical heart. You see, perfectionism is super subtle. On the one hand, we want to do all things for, to God's glory and with excellence, Right? Perfectionistic thinking likes to put itself up right next to it. And if we're not careful, it's hard to distinguish the two. And really, perfectionistic thinking and perfectionistic ways of relating to people, it's really just showing a love for self. And if that speaks to any of us this morning, that's a false gospel. That's not good news. D.A. Carson cautions us here. Any pursuit of perfection that is not awash in the grace of God displayed on a little hill outside of Jerusalem is bound to trip us up. Perfectionists tend to also focus acutely on their failures too, which only brings despair. Beloved, if that, if that describes you this morning, look away from your failures and look to Jesus Christ. For every one look at your failures and your sins and your shortcomings, look at 10 looks at Christ. Friends, if you look at your failures or you look at how people accept you and approve you, that's a false gospel. That might be some backwards, therapeutic, deistic, baptistic view of salvation, but that's not the gospel of the Bible. Friends, don't look 
at your failures to meet your own personal standards. Look to Christ who met God's perfect standard for you. Friends, this is the good news. We can't measure up to our own standards or standards that men give to us because Christ has already done that for us perfectly. He took our sin on that cross and was punished in our place and he rose from the dead giving us the assurance of justification declared right with God. He gave us the assurance that the work he begins in you, sanctification, he will complete on the last day. That's glorification. The clean one left his pearly kingdom to come down to the slums of our sin to wash the unclean sinners from the inside out. As Randall read earlier from Titus chapter 3, Jesus doesn't come to save us to make us better rule followers. Jesus came to save us, to change our hearts, to delight in whatever commands God gives us. He washes us. He regenerates us to give us a new heart that delights in doing his will. Friends, if, if, if you're just worn out from that perfectionistic thinking, stop looking to your failures. Look to Christ. He fulfilled God's perfect standard of holiness for you. Trust him and you will be saved. Here in Mark 7, there was just another man-made gospel that they had conjured up. There was really no gospel at all. They were focused on hand-washing, but they were neglecting their dirty hearts. Listen, if you try to obey God's commands without grasping the grace and love of God who gives those commands, it's just another version of legalism. It's dead religion. Uh, parents, this is a good word for you and I to hear this morning. If your mindset to your children, and I'm speaking to me too, is simply ushering rules and yelling at our children, thinking that yelling will make them holy, there is a gaping hole in our understanding of parenting. Rules are good, but if they're separated from the grace and love of God, they will cripple someone. They will make your children future Pharisees. Tim Keller has said, behavioral compliance to rules without heart change will be superficial and fleeting. In fact, the Pharisees went even further beyond hand-washing, and their oral tradition creeped over into sacrifices offered to God that really contradicted the rest of God's word. You'll notice there in verses 10 to 12, uh, Jesus rebukes them for disobeying the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. And, and then he shows the severity of doing such a thing. And it was really capital punishment to curse and to publicly basically humiliate your parents. Uh, you see, once again, the Pharisees had conveniently sidestepped the clear commands of Scripture, which were caring for one's parents as they got older in life. Uh, they did this by setting aside their offerings to God and calling it Corban. You see there in verse 11. Corban was just another word that meant an offering to God. Uh, these offerings were like property or certain goods that could accrue interest over time. Uh, by calling something Corban, it, it would be viewed as something like we would deem today like a will like a trust, uh, some kind of charity gift 
that is given to some person or family or institution after we die. Uh, Thus, a person might declare their property Corbin. In other words, they're going to hold on to it and give it to someone after they die, and it would generate income for them throughout their life. And the Pharisees, they used this idea of Corbin as a legal loophole to avoiding caring for one's parents in their older age. Conveniently, if you say something's Corbin, you can't take care of their parents with that offering. You have to give it to the temple. You have to basically give it to us. You see, in Mark 7, Jesus wasn't looking for a fight. Jesus wasn't argumentative. Jesus wasn't a hothead. But when hypocrisy came his way, he exposed it. You see, these men claimed to be the light for others, and yet they were the blind leading the blind. They didn't even know God. Their father was the father of lies. These Pharisees claimed to be religious guides, but they were the ones who needed to be taught the Scriptures. The oral traditions had so ingrained their thinking that they couldn't even teach and apply the Scriptures accurately for themselves or for others. It took the son of a carpenter with no rabbinical training from a no-name town of Nazareth to teach them the Word of God. You see, the light of the world began to shine the truth of God into their dark and ugly hearts. Like an x-ray we get from a doctor or like the recording on a video from a security camera. Jesus lays the evidence before them and exposes them as religious hypocrites. Jesus doesn't hold back what needs to be said. What does Jesus say about their hypocrisy? What does Jesus say about our hypocrisy? Look at verse 6. He says they give lip service to God without a heart that truly loves God. What's the sin committed? It's dead religion. It's works-based righteousness. It's dotting your I's. It's crossing your T's, but having a spiritually dead heart. It's lots of talk, but no walk. Verse 7, he says that they offered fruitless or vain worship. What's the sin committed? They're just going through the motions. They're just going to church just because or because someone invited them. They're really disinterested. They're disengaged with this God. They they don't love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, nor do they ever even want to aspire to such a thing. Friends, worship that is not regulated and governed by the word of God will be vain worship. Then in verses 1 to 13, Jesus basically puts the ball on the tee and smacks it out of the park. When he pins the Pharisees in the turnbuckle, he puts them on the ground with the word of God exposing their religious hypocrisy, and this is what he reveals. They have replaced the commandments of God with man-made traditions. And Jesus calls that idolatry. 
Did you hear those words in our passage of how serious Jesus took the scriptures and how serious he responds to religious leaders who twist them and disobey them? Look at Mark 7, verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Mark 7, verse 9. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Mark 7, verse 13. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Friends, they had divorced God's word from their heart and they had gotten in bed with the fallible wisdom of men. Friends, that's idolatry. Jesus exposes religious hypocrisy by exposing us to the teaching of God's word. So, how can we at CCBC hearing this sermon today, avoid religious hypocrisy in our own hearts, in our individual lives, and in our corporate worship as a church. Which leads to point number three, what is the remedy for curing religious hypocrisy? Friends, here's your answer. We must put away our hypocrisy and allow the clear teaching of God's word to govern our lives. We must put away our hypocrisy and allow the clear teaching of God's word to govern our lives, to govern this church, to govern your marriage, to govern your child rearing, to govern your thought life, to govern your wallet, to govern your future plans, to govern how you think of retirement. It is to touch and have authority over every part of our life. Look with me at verses 14 to 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me. This is Jesus, the Logos. Hear what I have to say. He's exposed the hypocrites. Now he's teaching the disciples. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him, can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Again, Jesus uses the scriptures to confront their error and expose their hypocrisy. And as members of CCBC, we should do the same. 
Friends, whatever keeps you from this book is feeding religious hypocrisy in your heart. The longer you stay away from the very means by which God reveals hypocritical, pharisaical thinking, the more we become the very thing that Jesus disdains. Friends, if we desire to be a church that offers worship and lives that please the Lord, we must constantly expose our life to the teaching of Scripture. In other words, we don't need less of God's Word exposed in our lives. We need more. Friends, everyone can have their opinion about how long a sermon is, how long services are. But I can tell you from my view as a pastor, as a watchman, if you will, of looking over Christianity in the circles that I know, our problem is not we're getting too much Bible. Our problem is we ain't getting any Bible. That's what's wrong with the church. We don't need five more programs. We don't need the nicest this and that. We need God. And when men play the pastorate, they play the diaconate, they play what it means to be a church member, people get traditions of men, but they don't get the word of God. And you know what that creates? Hypocritical churches. You want to see a true church? It's a church that's saturated, a waterfall over them of the word of God. When the people in that church get excited mostly about not the coolest instrument, not lasers and lights, it would blind me anyway. Give me Jesus, pastor. Expound the scriptures precept upon precept, line upon line. Unleash the meat and milk that God has given his sheep. Friends, that's reformation. That's revival. Proverbs says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and be found a liar. Friends, do you know what the church needs today? It needs sound, passionate, convictional, confessional, courageous, expository preaching. What is expository preaching? It's preaching which starts from the biblical text and exposes its full meaning to the hearers. Expository preaching is preaching which starts from the biblical text and exposes its full meaning to the hearers. J.I. Packer once called expository preaching letting text talk. On this point, Brian Chapel, when teaching young preachers, he challenges the humility of every pastor. He says, the expository preacher opens the Bible before God's people and dares to say, I will explain to you what this passage means. The words are not meant to convey one's own authority, but rather humbly confess that the preacher has no better word than God's word. Thus, the preacher's mission and calling is to explain to God's people what the Bible means. That's why pastors are called under-shepherds. They're not celebrities. 
they are under the authority of the chief shepherd. No man should ever enter into a pulpit or wear the title of pastor or elder if his heart has not been bent and his heart has not been changed by God's grace. Because when a man throws his traditions, his opinions, his personality, and his ego into the pulpit, you're not getting God. They plagiarize sermons. They tickle the ears. And they starve the sheep. Paul told Timothy, did he not? Son, you got a lot of stuff coming at you in church ministry. There's a lot of religious hypocrites out there. Here's your marching orders, young man. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Here it is. Timothy, this is it. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, man's traditions, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. A colleague and fellow pastor in New England defines expository preaching this way. Expository preaching is an exercise in constantly asking God, what do you want to say to your people? If you're new to church, if you're a new Christian, this is the most important thing you should look for in a church. Parents, if you've got kids going off to college soon, or maybe they're about to leave college and go off and start their career and they're moving to a new city, a new town, a new place, Encourage them to find a sound church that prioritizes preaching like that. This is the kind of preaching you should ask God to bless your life with. This is the kind of preaching that you want to raise your families under for decades. This is the kind of preaching that you want for your spiritual growth and joy. Anything less is cheap and a waste of your time. You see, in this final section, Jesus had made it clear that a new day had dawned. The new covenant age was upon them. Food laws and ceremonial cleansing laws were being done away with. What what made people unclean was not the food they ate, but the sin their heart loved. You see, in Christianity, why you do what you do is sometimes more important than what you do. Why you do what you do, the heart The motives, that's what Jesus is getting at. Why do you do what you do? It's sometimes more important even than what you do. That's why Jesus said, you want to get down to the core of religious hypocrisy? They focus too much on what they do and not why. Asking the why question before God, in his word, with others, will reveal what's in the heart. What is religious hypocrisy? It's deliberate, premeditated disobedience to Jesus that gives off the appearance that you're obeying Jesus. Notice my words. 
It is a deliberate, premeditated disobedience to Jesus that gives off the appearance to others that you're obedient to Jesus. How do you know if religious hypocrisy is in your life? Maybe spend this week thinking about that definition of hypocrisy. Ask God to search your heart and expose any hypocrisy that you didn't know was there. And friends, when you see it, look to Christ. When you see you failed, look to Christ. When you didn't meet your standard that week in parenting or at work, look to Christ. He already met the perfect standard for you. What's wrong with the church today? What's wrong with my heart? Historian and theologian Tom Nettles once said this, Reformation is the recovery of biblical truth that leads to the purifying of one's theology. It involves a rediscovery of the Bible as the judge and guide of all action and thought, corrects errors in interpretation, gives precision, coherence, and courage to doctrinal confession, and gives form and energy to the corporate worship of the triune God. At the end of the day, if we want to expose our religious hypocrisy and and all the other dark sins that he lists there in verses 21 to 23, guess what we need to pray for? Reformation and revival. We turn back to God's word as our authority and pray for God's spirit to give us a heart for him. We need this in our individual lives and we need this corporately as a local church. Jesus exposes religious hypocrisy because God cares how we worship God. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What would Jesus say about your worship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great are your works, studied by all who delight in them. Lord, we thank you for Mark chapter 7. It is not as easy and maybe even natural to hear as maybe last week's sermon on a compassionate shepherd, but your word reveals to us what we need to hear. Jesus cares about us. He both comforts and he challenges. He loves us, yet he will not let us off the hook with religious hypocrisy. Lord, examine our hearts today. Reveal and expose to us throughout this week and in the years ahead any hypocrisy we need to put away. And allow the teaching and preaching of your word to expose and to heal and to make us clean again. Lord, we praise you that it's not our performance that makes us right with you, but it's the perfect obedience of Christ. And Lord, I pray that now you would remind us through singing of the fountain that cleanses our dirtiest and guilty stains. 
Lord, that would be the joy of our heart. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.